Welcome to Yellow Chair Collective. My name is Helen Garcia, and I'm the host for YCC Season 3 podcast. Today, I want to introduce a really fun roundtable discussion with Jack, Jeff, and me, where we kind of uncover the basics of how toxic masculinity is important to talk about within the therapeutic process, why it's important to discuss as a form of mental health, and so hope you enjoy this episode. It's actually really funny. I loved editing it. Um, here it is. Okay, so we're doing this thing called a roundtable discussion now, and I have with me Jeff Yum and Jack Lamb, and I just want to thank them first by coming on here. We've already done like two or three episodes of them. Glad to be back. We're back. But I want to start off by asking a get-to-know-you question. What is the most embarrassing thing you've ever done? I'll go to, but I'll go last. Most embarrassing thing? Yeah. Okay. Never felt that emotion, so it's going to be hard for me. (laughs) Oh, my (laughs) God. Who's going first? You should go first, Jeff, and I'll go second. Jack can go last. I think this... Okay, I'll go with this one since I recently had a lot of travels recently so my mom my sister and i we were traveling i don't know where we were going probably la california at the time together and we were in the security line and you know back then you know they made you everything except your bare essentials and for at least for me i when you go to the bathroom you go to the urinal you under your your belt and your pants and you go to the bathroom Well, I don't know what was happening. I was not prepared for security. I think I was tired. I took my belt off and put it in the security box. And then I started undoing my button and my zipper. And my sister looks at me and she goes, Jeff, what are you doing? I said, I don't know. And people were looking at me. (laughs) I was so embarrassed. Zipped my pants up, buttoned it back up. Then walked through the little... (laughs) scanner thing and i was like jesus what is happening I was not okay. ready it was bad. you just probably were daydreaming at that moment or something i don't know I, maybe we were in a rush and my mind and body were not in the same place i think that thing might have happened to me at one point but i don't think i've ever like undone my pants in front of psa well, line. it's a good thing my sister caught me oh my god you would have flashed everyone at that airport probably <laughs> that would have been hilarious My most embarrassing moment was when I was in the sixth grade and it was raining out. I was late to class and I was wearing these like really big baggy pants. I was like four, eight or nine in the sixth grade and it was pouring rain. I was running down the stairs. I knew that my bladder was about to explode, but I was like already late to class. And so in my head, I was like, okay, I either make it to class just like two minutes late and I only get a penalty. But then if I go to class, And I need to pee. My teacher will think I'm rude because I just got here late and I need to pee. And I'm already like overthinking it. And I was one step away from going down the stairs and my foot trips on my pants. I fall and I pee my pants. That's right. And this gets worse. My pants are already freaking soaking wet. And I go to class and I'm the sub for the announcer, right? And the announcer calls out sick. And so they're the person that says, like, please stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, like, every morning. And and so my teacher's like, oh, Helen, good, you're here. And she doesn't even notice that I wet my pants. 
she's like, you need to go to the office right now. Like you need to announce like in front of the school. And I'm Ooh. like, okay. Wow. <laughs> in front of school with wet pants. And my pants are dripping and people think that I j- it just rained. But like people like can smell the pee on my pants. And I never lived it down. That's people called bad. me Helen P. Pants once. Helen my sister P-Pans? was embarrassed. <laughs> oh, that sucks. Wow, that is that is painful. It was. I was told that's I think mine, I, I think it probably was when I was 12 as well. This was back in Malaysia. I was very good at spelling. So I was in a spelling bee and I, I made it that. to... Thank you. Well, I mean, oh, I don't go around. Bad. Yeah, I don't really like... <laughs> no one knew Jack was a good speller. Yeah. Oh. I don't really like to flex. You know, I, I don't really want people <laughs> to get that image of me. You know, I build... I go to great lengths to build this cool girl aesthetic. So Riz us really up with your spelling. No, I was really good at spelling. So I made it to like a state, state level competition. And this was like aired nationally in Malaysia. And it was set up in a huge mall with a stage and, you know, parents and people like judges would come. And I have incredible like social anxiety and stage fright. So... I remember going up to the stage and this is when I was like 12 or 13, right? And the first word that they gave me was minnow. And I had never, ever heard of that before. And I asked for the definition. They were like, oh, it's like a tiny little fish. And I'm like, I don't know any fish that we don't eat. You know, like if it's not tilapia, if it's not cod, if it's not salmon, I don't know fish. So I was like, I didn't know how to spell it. I spelled it wrong. And then they were like, that's incorrect. And then I sighed, but I didn't realize that like the microphone caught it. So the sigh like broadcasted and everyone started laughing in the crowd. And I was already so anxious because I was like, oh my God, I don't know this word. I'm embarrassing myself. This is the first round on a like nationally broadcasted thing. So whenever they started laughing, I just started crying and I like bolted off the stage. So traumatic. I I know. So I cried on national television. So just went. Literally. (laughs) You could hear it like, you're incorrect. And then you hear this little child. (sighs) You have the recording? No, thank goodness. I do not. I gotta go find that in the dark web. On YouTube. It's probably on YouTube somewhere. It's not that. Who knows? It's hard to believe that like people our age are growing up with like you take everything they've probably ever done is on the internet. I don't, I can't imagine being this age right now, like 13, 12. Okay. So somebody said the other day, yeah, a kid told me I've lived through to my friend. You've lived through five decades. And I was like, I've lived through four then because the nineties, two thousands. 2010, 2020, like, oh, goodness. Yeah, the world is, like, evolving pretty quickly. And I think the reason why I wanted to ask this question about, like, our most embarrassing moments is that I think we're just at, like, the crux of everything where, like, a lot of our lives, we choose what we want to share. And we're at an age now where we can, like, be an advocate for something or we stand for something. And most people now living in this age, like teens, young adults, they're unsure of who they are, but they think they should know. And I think like given the topic that we're talking about with toxic masculinity, we hear these words, you know, be a man, but what does a man mean? 
do I identify as a man? Like, what does that what does that look like for me? And so these kids are having to battle with these questions in public. And so to clarify a lot of these points, I think personally for me that it's important to hear a therapist's perspective on the internet so that people do feel safe. And, and so my follow-up question then to this like fun icebreaker question is, as a therapist, how would you define toxic masculinity and how it affects individuals like teens, young adults? Big question. I mean, Thank you. I, I think of social media and the times we live in now as so it, pros and cons, I guess, right? I, I think of when we think of gender, right? And role models of gender, I think people used to grow up only seeing the models in their lives, right? Whether that's their parents, their relatives, neighbors, teachers, immediate environment. Whereas now on social media, I'm thinking of TikTok, Instagram, you're exposed to so many people. Like you can seek out people that you would want to model yourself after, right? The, the access is unlimited. And so I think we're, that's like a benefit because, you know, in case you do grow up in spaces like myself when I was young and queer that you don't see your gender or experiences reflected that you can kind of go online and look for that. But there's also a, that double-edged sword of I'm thinking of kind of, for example, Andrew Tate, right? Like when people can share their ideologies that are extremely harmful and that goes kind of unvetted, unfiltered or harder to catch because you don't really know what your kids are really consuming online. And especially at that age where, as you said, right, like maybe there's a little bit more confusion, exploration, questioning about who I am, who do I want to be, what kind of ideas kind of align with my value system that can be pretty damaging, right, to kind of internalize those kinds of ideologies. Yeah. So, Jack, as a follow-up for people who don't know who Andrew Tate is, can you provide an example about how it's been harmful? So he is basically this influencer, I guess. Some would say thought leader, quote unquote, but basically just someone who shares like his ideas of what men should be like, what women should be like. He would, he has really, really harmful things about women, kind of like, you know, victim blaming when it comes to rape victims, as well mm -hmm. as kind of in a lot of videos, actually, sometimes openly advocating being aggressive or violent with your female partners if they acted out of line um, or acted in a way that, you know, it's not feminine or subservient to the man. So very, very harmful personality. Thankfully, I think he's been banned uh, on a lot of the social media platforms. But yeah, before he was, he became he was kind of one of the biggest names on those platforms, unfortunately. Yeah. Hmm. It's bad. Really it's triggering. Yeah. It reminds me of like I think a lot of people that are lonely, especially you you hear about what's happening. And I think when you're on the internet and you're in a vulnerable place, it's easier to have that be translated into something that is outside of who you are and like point and victim blame and and have that be your own identity as opposed to like figuring out who you are as a person. And I think what you said, Jack, is true, where it's both. Like, it doesn't have to be one or the other bad. Or good. There are positives to people within the queer community 
who have examples now of who they can look up to and examples that they can see, but it can also pivot the other way for people who might be lost in who they are and find the wrong people to follow. And to add to that, I think just from a developmental standpoint, younger kids, teens, adolescents are still figuring out who they are, you know, and it's fairly normal for kids, teens to want to separate from their parents and figure out who they are apart from that. So you don't have role model of the parents, but yeah, it's a double-edged sword where you're at the hands of what social media puts out. And I don't think adults are out of the equation as well. There are things that can happen that shake up your worldview or even your darks that you've upheld in this world. And those are vulnerable moments for even adults to like get sucked into whatever ideologies or beliefs that may or may not necessarily align with who they are. As a follow-up to that, like what does toxic masculinity mean to either of you, Jack and Jeff, and like how how does it play into how you live your life? I think, well, for me, toxic masculinity is those maybe you could say irrational or unfair expectations of what for me a sister or man should be, how I should act, how I should think, how I should talk. Those expectations can be really unhealthy. I think, yeah, generations play a role in that. I think religion can play a role in that as well. And I think it just sets this unrealistic expectation of how we're supposed to act or behave. And to answer your question on why having a clinician with their perspective or being in a therapy room and try to sort these things out. I think it's reparative because when do you get a chance to really sit down and think about these values, these beliefs that you are trying to center yourself around without the influence of the things around you, some of which can be really healthy, some of which can be unhealthy or unhelpful. But that's why I think it's helpful to have a mental health clinician who is hopefully culturally competent and as unbiased as they possibly can hold the non-judgment space so that you can go through that journey. Thanks, Jeff. Jack, do you have anything to add? No, I think that was very beautifully said. I think the only thing that always comes to mind for me when I think of toxic masculinity is gender roles, I guess. You know, more... I think Jeff covered it in more specifics, right, of kind of the expectations that come with being a certain gender. Mm. And of course, that varies culturally, contextually, environmentally. But when I think of toxic masculinity, I think of when these roles become rigid, when these roles become projected, and then kind of any deviance from these roles then become punished or in some way slate to violence or aggression. Yeah. I love what you said, where any deviance from these roles can become as a punishment in whatever way. And so I think in your personal lives, when you felt like you have seen what it was like, what your unique gender expression was and was not, how did you experience punishment within the system that we're living in now? Yeah, I mean, I think this is 
you know, and my experience growing up as well as continuously, right? The first thing that I always think of when I was growing up was being in Chinese school in Malaysia. And there was one time where I remember this so vividly, uh, not completing my assignment and I was being berated by my teacher hmm. and I started crying because I was so embarrassed and humiliated. And then the teacher kind of doubled down on yelling at me because she was essentially saying, why are you crying? Voice shouldn't be crying. This is not just like, this is now you're not just embarrassing because you can't complete your homework. Now you're embarrassing because you're not enough of a man because you're crying. As opposed to ever, I would see like women cry when they were being punished. Same teacher would say, oh, it's okay. If you, if you're crying, that means you know you did something wrong and that you are, you know, acknowledging that there was a mistake made. And I, I just remember thinking, wow, like this is all just, be, they think of a man a certain way and a woman of a certain way. So, and then even to now, you know, I'm, I'm pretty open about being non-binary about on all my social accounts. And I just recently, this past week, I posted like a unboxing video of me unpacking some houseware that I was really excited about. And then I had a comment just like randomly on Instagram saying like, what happened to real men? Is this how men speak like these days? All of these things that are really just ugly and unwarranted, honestly. So, you know, I think that's when I, that's our, those are the things I think of when I think of like deviants being punished. Mm. I hate that. Who's that person? I'm going to go find them. It's the rando. Doesn't even have a face on their profile. So. Mm. And like, oh, you can't pin commenting. That makes me, I think for me, I remember, I, I've probably shared this story on other podcast episodes, but being able to mourn is something that I've always like been able to do. And I say that meaning I'm more sensitive, empathic, and I don't say this in a bad way, but more emotional. Like when I'm hangry, you will know. When I'm tired, I you will know. When I'm sad, you will know. And those periods of mourning, I think, are really important, but society has labeled it for men like you shouldn't cry. And for me, when I was young, mourning the death of my most like idolized uncle, I was told to wipe your tears. And I remember, I think I yelled at it. I said, I'm going to cry if I want to. And I left the limo that we were all driving behind the hearse in. And ever since then, like every funeral, I would just sob and I, and I see all the other Korean men face stoic. I was like, what the heck is wrong with these people? Something's got to change because apparently the only emotion that we're allowed to feel is anger and nothing else. I mean, you see it depicted in even Pixar movie, like the dad is stoic or angry, but you don't see them very happy or expressive with their emotions. I, I remember in turning red, I was like, hmm, okay. I see it. Dad's just kind of the background. The way I see it, this this could just be me, but with dating, like, I don't know if the collective, I, I think I did a rant about this where I think certain women do want men to express their feelings. But then when that's like a lot in the beginning, it's seen as like, oh, what is this? Kind of like, this is not maybe the guy that I want. Like, I want someone who can leave or whatever so i sometimes feel like i get caught in that of i mean i still can lead and i take care of things and all that maybe i'm just a little bit different yeah 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think what you experienced, Jeff, I definitely seen that a lot in like, I remember being so shocked when I was at university and I had a lot of girlfriends and the amount of times I've heard like my friends who are girls like trying to date guys for like, you know, I think it's nice having like a good guy who's like in touch with his feelings, but like something about bad boys, just, you know, something about <laughs> The quiet, silent, like not uncaring type. And I remember just thinking in my head, wow, this is like so toxic. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's toxic. Quite right? literally. I mean, when I think of toxic masculinity, that's what I think of. I mean, I, I think of not so much just the expectations we put on men, but like the expectations and that we internalize, like all of us, as mm -hmm. to what we think of what is attractive even right like what a man should be or should look like and That's right how much judgment there is when again the deviance is there right because going to jeff's point again about representation like men or like i guess attractive heroic lead role men are all a certain archetype right they're all like mm. uh, usually kind of super hyper masculine super strong, like fighter type, quick to anger, not so much. You don't see them cry, right? You never see them anxious. You never see them really that scared of anything. Maybe more so now than before, but definitely not before, right? Like, I think, especially growing up with a rom-com, it is a, it's a beautiful fantasy of kind of a man who's so passionate and so like one-track-minded so clear like oh i just want this i know how to build my life everything and it's like oh yeah of course that's attractive but that's also a fantasy like that's not a real person right a real person has a range of feelings and of course they'll be uncertain right like but that's the kind of expectation i think that is sometimes set up with toxic masculinity of like well if you're a real man is someone who really like goes for it knows what he wants like never doubts himself, you know, grabs life by the throat, you know, like, and like, even things like, what is it? Like, never, like, like don't ask for permission. Ask for forgiveness. For forgiveness. Yeah, I, oh, I hear that. And that makes my blood boil. Because I'm just like, this is terrible. But I, you know, I, I digress. I think we're going on a good direction here, though. Jeff, what were you going to say? I was just going to say when Jack was the the image that they were stirring up in my mind was the guy from the witch he's an emotionless hero who goes and hunts monsters and it, obviously yeah. he's attractive big buff dude who's used to be superman and he doesn't show any emotion he's just like yeah half the time you don't even know what he's saying <laughs> wait is this henry uh henry i think so i don't know him and Gerard Butler are the people that come to mind when you're talking about oh, yeah. <laughs> I think of I think of Sylvester Stallone. Mm. Like I, I used to watch Rambo growing up and I was like, he just got sliced up in a million pieces and he's not mad. Like he's only mad about it. Like and now he wants to go back and fight. <laughs> if that happened to me, I wouldn't want to do it. <laughs> Makes yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. It's just I love. I was going to say, I love the direction that we're going on because I think that like a lot of my friends who have grown up in different cultures, like one of my really good friends is from South Africa 
And she notices like the gender dynamics that are at play in the United States. And I think that like a lot of the things that we're talking about are multi-layered because there are cultural expectations. There are gender expectations. But in some ways, like as even as a child, like you knew that something was wrong with that because why was I not allowed to feel hurt or why was I not allowed to feel a range of emotion? Like just because I am fine as a certain thing does not give me a lack of permission to do things. And I think it even affects women because like I'm extremely type A and a lot of my friends and people that I've I'm very close to think that there's something wrong with that for me as a woman because like, oh, a woman should be submissive. A woman should be X, Y, and Z. And I've had to really fight up against that. And I'm really thankful that I had a dad who wasn't that way with me. Like he was very empowering and and my parents have a very equal relationship. But I remember watching an interview with Jay-Z and Beyonce and there's I admire them because they're such a huge couple. And one of the things that Jay-Z said, because someone asked them, I was like, Jay-Z, like Beyonce just like talked about your relationship and how much he, like how much she was hurt by what you did. Like, aren't you going to fight back against that? And he was like, no, she should go first. Like she should feel vulnerable enough to share that because she did feel all those things. And you just, I could hear the interviewer just fight back up against that. like. Didn't you feel any hurt? Didn't you feel like any like anger towards her because you were, she was like talking about your marriage and she's like, well, guys do that to women. Why isn't a woman allowed to do that to a man? Like we're in a marriage, we're in an equal partnership. And so we should both be allowed to speak our minds. And I think that that is just like the value system that we're talking about now is almost rethinking and reshaping heteronormative relationship. like your relationship just the dynamic that we're up against I just don't think people understand you know people just think that that's what is oh yeah yeah and I think you know going back to Jeff's earlier point of therapy therapy as reparative Mm -hmm. I think this is one of those things that can come up very often especially when I work with clients around gender identity and gender expression is this, I guess, dilemma of who I was taught to be versus who I am or who I want to be, right? Of this almost like a negotiation between what I know now and how I am when it comes to my gender is safe because one else expresses or identifies in the same way, right? If I was born like a man or a cis woman and I was thinking of identifying differently. It's scary because you've seen how people who are deviated, you've seen how people who deviate are treated. Mm -hmm. And when you're considering things or when you're trying to push back on gender roles or expectations, that's kind of the thing that comes up is like, but what will people think of me? People will think of I'm less of a woman, I'm less of a man, I'm less of a person. Because again, like a lot of the rhetoric around like, queer people is still very dehumanizing, right? When people don't identify as a man or a woman, you know, you still hear these flippant comments of like, yeah, man, woman, what, or whatever, you know, I don't you know what thing you want to mm-hmm. call yourself kind of thing. It's like, you are a person. At the end of the day, it's still a person that you're talking about. And 
you know, that's the kind of thing that I think of that really forces this rigid rigidity of like the gender binary and especially like toxic masculinity. Yeah, that was so good. I love, I actually wrote down what you said, Jack. We're taught to be something, but we actually want to be something else. And the work that you continue to do with in just helping them understand what one is and what is not. Yeah, I mean, I think I see a lot of clients who are affected by toxic masculinity in a lot of different ways, right? Heteronormative relationships, expectations as to what success or progress in their life looks like, right? A lot of people who grew up in a heteronormative society and have not had a lot of exposure to other models of relationships or success, it's hard for us to think of other ways of being, Mm. right? It's hard to think of, well, I could be 40 and not married and still be happy because that's not really a thing that you've ever <laughs> seen, right? Because everyone says like, you got to find a spouse. You have Why to find you a married? House. You have to have a baby, a family. <laughs> Who's going to take care of you? All of these things that might not be what you want, but there's still so much pressure to do because that's mm. just the role, right? That's just what, you, like for women, especially, right? Of kind of like, you know, when are you going to settle down? What? Maybe you're focusing too much on your work and not enough on your relationships. No. Ridiculous. Yeah. So it's just, you know, I think of all of this and I think of how sad it is when you work so towards this life, right? Because it's hard to find a partner, to build a house, to build a family, only to realize at the end of the day, maybe this isn't what I wanted. Mm. And then what do you do at that point, right? So I think therapy is really that space of like, let's, not get there hmm. let's start before you get there and then you get resentful of your life and you feel like you've wasted that's years so because of that's other so good jack snap snap and i think that's a lot of our clinical training as therapists like we kind of understand what an individual's belief system is we reiterate what we hear and for the first time someone is hearing back what they've been thinking their whole lives that they might have not felt safe to say and then they realize that it might be ridiculous. Like, oh, I can be can be 40 single and happy. <laughs> it's like there's it's funny because there's a thread of truth to that. Like things are funny because it calls out what is obvious. And I think that's what makes comedy so genius and like therapy so genius, because we can do both. We can laugh about it and tell the truth about it. Because that's yeah. our job. And if, if there are any this is my opinion. This is Jeff Yom opinion, but <laughs> any of the listeners have a clinician who like denies your own belief, like even just that, like, oh, I can be 40 single and happy. I'm not going to lie. There are therapists out there be like, oh, are you sure? And they'll still impose their biases. And that I would say is a red flag and you should get out. Hmm. I'm just going to say it. You can come after me if you yeah. want to, whoever's listening to this. But I do think it's like a genuine space for you to figure out what your own values and expectations are. And it should be a safe space, not another replicate of what your family or maybe society. It's like a salmon swimming upstream. You don't want to be bombarded by all that while you're trying to figure out your life. That's right. Oh. I, I think that's what I love about just this conversation and also 
working for Yellow Chair, like we make it our mission so that people are informed about what cultural competent therapy is. Because I just don't think that that's very common, unfortunately, for a lot of people. And we live in a time now where that's skyrocketing the need to skyrocket. Were you going to say something? Yeah, no, I think what Jeff said absolutely is true. I, I would agree with that. I think I fit in a lot of therapy spaces as clients and they would have, you know, <laughs> certain expectations of what a good life is, right? Like what, how wow. you're supposed to live, right? And mm. yeah, to an extent, it's true. I think there there is something to be said about kind of based and what has worked for most people. But it's always back to that idea of like, this has worked for most people, mm. right? When it comes to research, when it comes to data, stories, you know, I, I think of these a lot of self-help books, right? And they're they're helpful because they give you kind of a vista of what are some different ways of living you can experiment and what are ways of living that really work for a lot of people, right? Yeah. Success stories and how to be happier, happiness tips, all of these things. But at the end of the day, these are generalized stories, right? You have your own and it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. line up, right? Because our human experiences are so diverse in that there's no one way or two ways or three ways to be happy, really. There's like a million ways to be happy. And I think that's where therapy is so powerful in providing that non-judgmental space because it's really just for you to figure out what works in your life. Not so much for the therapist to tell you, well, here are three ways to be happy. Pick one, right? It's just, I love how you say things, Jack. Because you literally take the obvious and you're like, this is ridiculous. Like you kind of just like oh. use it as like a water bottle. You're like, this is what you're living with. This much water, right? I'm holding up a bottle of water with like very little water. I, I think we're going towards the direc- direction of like really knowing what type of therapy you're going into. And so a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are experienced therapists or people who just want to know what therapy is. And so we have two very different ends of the spectrum. And so for someone listening who doesn't know what non-biased therapists look like, we've published a couple of like TikToks on our TikTok page about red flags to look for. And I wanted to like create space to talk about that and have a discussion about what are some ways that you can tell when a therapist is able to provide space for you to share your values rather than taking up space about their own. I guess the first thing I think of is how much the first thing i think of is how present now the words cultural competence are thrown around that's right right and i think of yeah i think of when a therapist is culturally competent if they're aware of kind of the cultural context that your client comes from whether it's based on their gender sexuality ethnicity nationality and when i think of unbiased I, i don't think of so much as like I have no judgment or no ideas and I'll take whatever you say. I think it's more so understanding like, okay, well, this is the context, right? Like growing up in America or growing up as an immigrant or having the immigrant experience all happen in a context, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's the context of toxic masculinity, heteronormativity, and at the same time, you know, people also have their individual relationships with the context, right? It might be that they are very entrenched and they do believe and that works for them versus they're very entrenched, they believe it, but something doesn't feel right and 
they really want to try to find different ways to kind of move through it, or they really just hate it and they feel trapped by it and they don't really know how to kind of get out of it, right? And I think as an unbiased quote-unquote therapist, it's kind of allowing that relationship with the context, the client's relationship with the context to kind of inform where you go as opposed to, again, like this prescribed notion of here's the one way that you can go to kind of get out of your depression, get out of your anxiety. Because essentially it's kind of like you need to know what kind of relationship feels best for you with the context that you're in, right? Because we can't change everything about the world. But what we can change is how it can be more bearable, more satisfying, more fulfilling to be in this context that you're in so that you don't feel miserable or helpless as you move through your life. So quotable. We should make that into like hmm. one of the Instagram reels. Do Thank it. you. To do it. Jeff, what think, about you? Yeah, I think I will say this. I think it's impossible for a therapist to be completely unbiased mm -hmm. because we come with our own story, our own experience, our own background, history, learning capacity, what have you. I think when I think about unbiased is like what Jack's understanding the relationship that the client has with the context that they're given, but also just allowing space, you know, having genuine curiosity, not from a place of I'm going to use this against you, but like, oh my gosh, if your family is going through a tough time, asking like, what are the traditions that you do have, especially during times of mourning? Because a lot of different cultures, ethnicities, they do have that. And that's something that they lean on for hope, for clarity, for closure. But if you impose like, oh, you should just have a ceremony and be done with it. Like that, that's not helpful. It doesn't fit their yeah. current context. And it's not going to help them through the process of grief for this example. You know, even just like, marriage too. There's not just one way to celebrate their tea ceremonies that some people do and do not want to take part in. And that's what some people want to have two ceremonies, one with their current context, but also their traditional ethnic context. I mean, it's just holding space for that kind of stuff. And another thing that I like to do is when, when I notice a client having a hard time express something, I'm like, say it in your native tongue. And they're like, what? I'm like, say it in Spanish or say it in Korean or Chinese or Mandarin. And they're like, I've never said this outside of my family, but this is weird. And I say, go for it. And I want, I, want, I need help understanding where that comes from. And they're like, yeah, I can't say this in English. It doesn't grasp the power or the meaning behind it. And I'm like, yeah, say it. Or even when talking about parents, like they say it in their native tongue, what their parents would say. And it helps them engage the dialogue more about what their struggle is rather than speaking it in English. It does encapsulate the power or the meaning behind it as much. I'm feeling an overwhelming sense of gratitude in this moment because the reason why I love podcasts is I get to hear different people's perspective and it humbles me because what you've both said, Jack and Jeff, like providing, like helping your client understand the context by which they're seeing the world, but also helping them embrace that and understand what it means to them. Like Jeff, you even saying 
I want to help clients understand how they relate to things in their own native implicates that they don't have to explain what that is to you. They're trying to explain what it means to them. And I think that what I'm hearing both of you say is you have like to find a therapist that's willing to do the work with you. They have to be willing to understand you. They don't have to explain themselves to you because you're not the person that's saving them. You're merely a guide in this experience, which I think is so helpful. So we have like less than 10 minutes left in our podcast. So I want to end with this. Two more questions. One of the final questions is, who is someone that you look up to as someone who displays healthy masculinity or healthy forms of femininity or genderqueer expression? Who are those people to you and why are they healthy examples? I go to my either my high school counselor or my kindergarten teacher. My kindergarten teacher, this female, Mrs. Strobel, that name brings me a lot of comfort. And then Mr. Frankel. I would say for this for this conversation, Mr. Frankel, he was my high school counselor and he was stern when he needed to but very gentle when it came to the hard moment. Stern when I was being stubborn and didn't want to do homework, but then he was also gentle and gracious when he noticed the times that I was struggling with losing my dad in high school. He's, he sat there with me in that, didn't have expectations like, oh, you should be completing this for your family, like the unnecessary pressure, but like, how can I support you? And he gathered all my teachers and met in a and he's like, Hey, I didn't, I don't want to intimidate you or anything. We just, we've all gathered and we know what happened and we felt like we wanted to support you. And so every teacher wanted to say something. And for me, that was very necessary. And I can't thank him enough for his gentle, but st- energy. He never gave off the vibe. Like you have to be someone that you're not. And he just held that space for me as I cried or whatever emotion I was feeling that day. That's so sweet. Oh, I in this space. You know what I mean? I think when I think of role models, I don't know if I think of, yeah, I guess to me at this point, when I think of myself as a genderqueer person, I don't think of it more as like a gender thing as much anymore as I do think of it more so as like a authenticity and live as who you are kind of thing. And my role models, I think how I got here, I think a lot of it comes from my mom, first and foremost, and then some of it, my dad and the rest of my family. But it was really because my mom grew up. It's funny, she used to, she used to be called a tomboy a lot because she only ever had short hair growing up and she still does. And I saw this, I saw your brother do a makeover for her on YouTube. I cried. (laughs) It's <laughs> very beautiful, your mom. Oh. Yeah, I am so grateful for my family for, you know, for as much as I think we grew up in a lot of ways still with rigid roles and expectations. My mom has been someone, I think, even if she doesn't say the right things, she shows the right, she embodies the values that I appreciate, right? Maybe even if she's not conscious, because she was a very confident businesswoman who, you know, was a huge boss doing the work that she loved to do, being able to kind of lead with a team of all women, right? In her, her last company, which 
you know, I don't think she, I don't know if she necessarily set out to do that, but it was kind of based in her experiences of working in corporate and especially at a company uh, owned by white men, how discriminated, how many times she was passed over, how many times her skills were looked down upon because she was a woman. So a lot of that, I think, bled into her work and a lot of that bled into her beliefs, right, of gender shouldn't be limiting to what you would like to do and what you would like to does she take that a little too far sometimes in that projecting analogies <laughs> expectations maybe on my sister of like oh you're you know like now you can do everything you're a strong woman and i'm like okay well let's dial it back and let's just focus on the fact that okay yes you can do anything regardless of your gender right and these things shouldn't be limiting shouldn't be judged based on you know for gender you choose to identify with and I think that's the part where I think is beautiful because she doesn't change who she is because she's been shamed or she's told that, you know, maybe she should have long hair to be more feminine. She should dress better or act or look or talk a certain way or not really aspire to certain positions, not have her own company when she's actually like done everything. So I really admire her for living the life that she wants to. And I aim to do that for myself too. You teared up. That was so good. I hope so too. I'll email you the direct link. (laughs) (laughs) You need to listen to this direct email. (laughs) He's honestly going to tear up and then she she won't know what to say. She's going to be like, so what do you want for dinner? (laughs) I want to end today's interview and be respectful for the both wheels time after this interview. What's something that you're going to do to take care of yourself as a sayonara? I'm going to light a candle. Aromatherapy, some more tea. Just a chill calm day i have so many errands to do. oh god play work out and organize my room all right i'm gonna i'm gonna eat this bibimbap that my sister bought me oh, there's like a galleria market a few minutes away from where we live so i'm are you in k-town that. no i don't live in k-town i live in the valley now people know where i live well you can just edit that oh whatever sorry oh God, i'm so jealous i oh bibimbap sounds so so good when you were when you were talking about your mom i thought about my sister because i think that like family really has this like huge impact on us good and bad where she sees how i'm just kind of like an energizer bunny if i don't i can't stop working sometimes and so what she'll do if i'm working from home is she'll just like put food on my table or she'll like prepare my clothes for the next day and she'll just like write a cute little note She's like, don't work too hard. Like, you also have to live a life. That's so so sweet. She's like one of those people that is generous without having to brag about it. You know, and my selfishness is like, well, I want people to know that I'm I'm just going to share my donation. Not not like that. I think us three are very similar in that aspect. (laughs) Yeah. That's why we're therapists. Do you know what I mean? Just for them bragging rights. That's why we're doing this podcast. That's why we're sharing our knowledge so people know. People are like, oh my God, they're like, actually all self-serving. It's selflessly selfish. I always like to say. Selflessly. All right. I want to be respectful of both of your time. So thank you. Thank you so much, Ellie.